came to me and said, hey, since we were doing Grounded in Christ then, let's um, kind of segue off that and let's do something on being, flourishing in God's word. So having been grounded in Christ, are we flourishing? And when Linda first assigned my topic, she said, why don't you teach on Psalm 1 and delighting in God's word? And I was like, yes, that sounds great. That's a very familiar psalm. And then I started studying, and it was a struggle because I, that was not resonating with me. I was more James Bond clinging to the helicopter for dear life. I call it clinging to God's word. But that's where I was, so the delighting was not resonating with me. And maybe this weekend, um, maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're not in a delighting mode, so to speak. Um, I was a little, little upset with Miss Linda for giving me that topic, but in God's kindness... He took me from the clinging to the delighting through studying Psalm 1, and I pray that that's what the Lord will do for you if that's where you are this weekend. We're going to start, um, hopefully everybody caught a copy of Psalm 1, and I did that for poor Brenda's benefit in the back so that we don't have to keep flipping back and forth on the slides. We're going to start with this beautiful picture of what it looks like to delight in God's Word, kind of in contrast with those who don't. So... Let's read through this first. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And the word blessed in the context of Scripture can be a little tricky because how is it usually translated? Blessed. How is it usually translated? Happy, yes. But I don't think that actually fits in every context because if you look at Psalm 2.12, it says, Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So can you be trusting in him and be sad at the same time? So I immediately thought of my friend Debbie. She's, she doesn't know that I'm going to talk about her. Um, Debbie's on her third rodeo with cancer, and there are very few people I know who have gone through what she's going through that trust the Lord like she does. And I know it's God's grace. That's what she's saying in her head right now. But is Debbie happy all the time? No, because Debbie's dealing with the side effects of all the treatments that she's had. She's dealing with constant lack of sleep. And so, no, she's not always happy, but she is trusting in the Lord. I think of like Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It would be kind of weird to put happier those who mourn, or 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Are we happy when we're persecuted? So the blessing's not in the mourning and in the persecution. It's that in the end, we have the ultimate blessing. So in this passage, we have the blessed man, the man walking in the path of blessing. We, he has God's favor through Christ. He's also called the righteous. And then we have, in contrast, the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. So the last three lines in verse 1 are something called parallelism. So if you came 
pre-COVID. I date everything like before COVID, after COVID. Before COVID, we had a, a conference on the Psalms and we talked about parallelism. And that's when you see in poetry, there are lines that are repeated. So they don't have the same words, but they have the same idea. And a lot of times it's used for emphasis or clarification. So we have who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands or abides in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we've got walks, stands, and sits. We've got counsel, way, seed, and we've got wicked, sinners, scoffers. All similar ideas repeated for emphasis. So we'll look at some other phrases in other passages that kind of flesh out what these things mean, like walking in the counsel. In Psalm 64.2, it says that the same word for counsel is hide me from the secret plot of the wicked, that's our word, from the throng of evildoers. They're not indifferent. They have an agenda. The blessed man doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, like Proverbs 1.22. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out, and at the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Notice here, wisdom is likening scoffers to fools. They delight not in the word, but in their scoffing. Or standing in the way. There's a, there's a lot of language in the Proverbs about this. Proverbs 1 and verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Also, Proverbs 2, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice and delight in doing evil, the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So we've got also in Jeremiah 6.16, the Lord is warning the tribe of Benjamin there's a coming war and a judgment on the people, and he tells them, stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So what does this tell us about verse 1? Well, verse 1 in Psalm 1 is telling us that the blessed man, he essentially, he does not follow in this path or this lifestyle, this attitude of the wicked. In fact, John Mark Comer says Jesus' vision of a flourishing life is often 180 degrees apart from the moral norms of our day. This is who they are. They delight in scoffing. They rejoice in doing evil. They delight in the perverseness of evil. And the 180 is our man here in Psalm 1, he delights in the law of the Lord. And we see that in verse 2. So we have this contrasting word, but the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Delight means to take pleasure in something, to desire something. He delights in God's law. This can also be translated instruction. If you've ever read Psalm 119, you'll see a lot of this theme throughout the theme of the law, God's instruction, his statutes. And there are a lot of places that, that echo the same sentiment. Psalm 113.3, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. 
Sometimes it can be delighted treasure, like in Job 23.12, when he speaks of treasuring God's word. I've not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. And lest we think that delighting is just an Old Testament sentiment, Paul also says in Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And something kind of a similar idea, 1 John 5, 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're a delight. They're a delight, not a burden, because it's that path of blessing. So this is the mark of the blessed man. He delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night. Meditate can also mean to be defined as ponders, he thinks on it, he talks to himself. So those of us that do that, you don't have to feel bad because even he does that. The psalmist in 119 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He thinks on it, he meditates, he memorizes it. Tim Keller says, persons who meditate become people of substance, who have thought things out and have deep convictions who can explain difficult concepts in simple language, and who have good reasons behind everything they do. Many people do not meditate. They skim everything, picking and choosing on impulse, having no thought-out reasons for their behavior. Following whims, they live shallow lives. And it makes me think of teaching children. You know, if you have to teach something like the sovereignty of God to a child who's five years old, you're going to have to work on that for a while. You're going to have to think it through and pare it down to be able to explain it to them simply. You meditate on it. Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Because again, we have this implied contrast, right, between the Lord's precepts and instructions, focusing on his ways, not the ways of the sinner and the scornful. Verses 97 through 99. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So we have this sister passage in Joshua 1. Joshua is about to lead Israel into the promised land where there's going to be a lot of temptation. There's going to be a whole lot of counsel that is not according to the word of God, a place where the way of life is very different. And this is what the Lord tells Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The Lord's counsel to Joshua and the nation of Israel as they get ready to face this hostile environment is meditate on the book of the law, day and night. Are we in a hostile environment? We are surrounded by the scornful. Sadly, it is literally right at our fingertips. And we can be confident that the world and the devil are not content for us to do our own thing. First Peter tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So hence we have this need to be meditating day and night. This phrase is often used in scripture to represent consistency and constancy, like Psalm 88.1, 
O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Or like Anna, waiting on the Messiah in Luke 2, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So now we're in verse 3, and we come to a simile, which you may, some of us have to dig way back in our junior high days. What is a simile? So it's a comparison using like or as, and uh, poetry, and a lot of times you'll see metaphors and similes um, to to give you a picture of what this looks like. And this is a beautiful picture. What are the consequences of delighting? What does it look like in, in meditating on God's word? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So we have a tree, we have a living thing that's being nourished by this continual stream and as a result, it bears fruit, it flourishes. For those of us who did the Aging with Grace study, remember Psalm 92, another beautiful tree picture. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So we have a tree, a living thing, and a living thing that's with this nourishing, continual stream because it's planted there. Notice that the ungodly man, he stands, he abides in the way of sinners. But the blessed man, he's planted, he abides by the water, the word. And as a result, it bears fruit. A living thing abiding by a life source does not wither. Again, Psalm 92, 14, at the end it says, they're ever full of sap and green, they're flourishing. In all that the blessed man does, he prospers, verse 3 says. So what does prosperity mean here? The Hebrew actually defines it as break out, to come mightily, to be good. So if we go back to the passage in Joshua 1, there's similar language again. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to, to the left that you may have good success. This isn't exactly the same word, but it's the same idea, and it actually means to act wisely. So just a little aside, I've never been to seminary. I don't know Hebrew, but it's not difficult to use tools yourself at home to look upwards, and it's so helpful because would you have known that to prosper means to act wisely? It's so helpful to, to use those tools that, got, that we have. So, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Here's our word. It means to push forward, to break out, to come mightily. And then you will have good success. Again, act wisely. Deuteronomy 29.9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper, deal wisely, in all that you do. Trillia Newbell says, time matters and how we spend it matters. Any time spent in God's word is never wasted. And if we are like the tree planted by this river of water and whatever we do is going to prosper, why would we not spend time in the word? Well, sadly, verse 4 shifts back to those that are not blessed. They're called the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
So the imagery here is very sobering. Um, Unlike the living, fruit-bearing, non-withering, flourishing tree, they're like the chaff. So the original audience of our psalm would have been agrarian, farming culture, and they know that chaff is that useless part of the grain in threshing. So they would beat the grain to get rid of the useless part and take the useful part. And it had to be separated, and the chaff would be blown away by the wind. It's useless. It's dead. It's unstable. It's blown away. It's the very opposite of flourishing. David prays to the Lord against his enemies, let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. John the Baptist says of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And verse 5 tells us what is the result of that? What is the consequence of being the chaff? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They won't stand. Again, there's that language of instability, insecurity. They won't abide in the judgment in the last day. And the rest of this verse, we've got parallelism again, this clarifying language, nor sinners in the congregation, the family of God. Well, why won't they stand? Verse 6 tells us, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And this isn't just a head knowledge, this is figurative language. It means to care and to recognize. Like Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So unlike the wicked in verse 5, we're known. We're cared for. And in contrast, the wicked will perish. This means to break or be destroyed. So Psalm 146.9 has similar language. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So one of the things we learned in our Women of the Word community group, you're supposed to cheer, is that when you begin to study a passage, it can be helpful to paraphrase a passage. So paraphrasing is just putting it in your own words. Now, obviously, we don't want to change the meaning of the words, but it can help you to meditate and to internalize it if you put it in your own words. And so after I went through and defined the words and clarified them, I came up with a paraphrase. Now, don't judge. I'm sure many of you could do a much better job. But I thought it would be helpful to step away from the familiarity of the language and and maybe go through a paraphrase. So the man in the path of blessing doesn't follow the counsel of the world. He doesn't follow in the lifestyle of the world. He doesn't copy or join in in the attitude of a scoffer. But he treasures... He takes pleasure in the instruction of the Lord. And on that instruction, he ponders constantly and consistently. The godly man is a live being, firmly established by a life source, and he produces more life consistently. He flourishes, and he doesn't shrivel up. Everything the godly man does comes mightily and is good. The ungodly people are not like the godly. Instead, they are dead and not flourishing, and the wind blows them away. 
So that means they won't abide in the last day as they're judged by God. They won't abide in the family of the godly because the Lord cares, he recognizes, he sees the course of life of the godly, but the life of the ungodly will fail. Well, as I said before, when I started started working on this passage, um, I faced a problem because what if we don't often delight in the Word of God? What if we're struggling? And why don't we? What, what is causing that? Maybe some of you here are asking yourself the same thing as you've worked through this passage. Maybe you have some pangs of guilt, like, well, I don't really feel like I'm flourishing. I'm actually depressed. I'm actually pretty discouraged. I'm exhausted. I'm not feeling much like a fruitful tree, more like a shriveled fruit. Um, and if, if you aren't in that place now, it is possible one day you could get to that place or know someone who is. And so I just wanted to encourage us to think about we won't delight in the word if we can't see its value. Um, about five and a half years ago, Sam and I went uh, out for our 25th anniversary, and I was married when I was 10, if you're doing the math. And uh, we went to our favorite go-to, which is Biscotti's. How many of you have been to Biscotti's? Yeah, so what do you see when you walk into Biscotti's? Dessert, yes. There's this big glass case, and the most enormous, beautiful desserts are there. They've got layer cakes. They have mousses. That's a really hard word to say, mousses. Um, they have bread pudding, anything you can imagine, and they're so wonderful, and it's really pathetic because when I know I'm going there, I spend the entire day trying to decide what I'm going to have because there's so many good options. But I landed on the peanut butter mousse, and so we went in, and we prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there's this beautiful plate of peanut butter fluffiness, and it has this layer of ganache, which is a fancy word for chocolate. And then there's this graham cracker crust, and if you're really fortunate, you get the peanut butter cup on top. But as I'm delighting in my mousse, I notice that Sam is like vigorously pointing to this little black velvet box beside my plate that I didn't notice. And I was so embarrassed because I was so zoned in on that dessert. I didn't notice the box. And what's really pathetic is that dessert was going to be gone very quickly. And this little black box, what was inside, could last a very long time, many, many generations. So I obviously had a value problem. I have greater delight in the way of your testimonies than in all manner of riches, it says in Psalm 119.14. Proverbs 2 tells us, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Maybe we need a refresher from Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the first or the second half, gives this beautiful illustration of all the things that God's word can do for our souls that can cause us to delight. So verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Our souls need, souls need to be revived. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We can get wisdom the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We can gain a rejoicing heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We can have our eyes enlightened. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We can know what is true. 
More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I am like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because valuing God's word, it doesn't come naturally. There's so many things that can distract us from what is truly valuable. And we need to ask God to work in us to value it. So what are some ways, these are just some, that we can, that, that God's word is valuable? God's word is valuable because it is absolutely true. Um, it's, it's a struggle, I'm sure, for most of us when you're looking at news and you, I don't know about you, but I try not to be in an echo chamber, so I'm looking at a blue site and I'm looking at a red site and I'm looking at a purple site and everybody says something different and you're like, what is true? I don't even know what, true, what the truth is. Or medical things, chocolate is going to kill you, chocolate is going to heal all your ailments. I think that's true. I do think that's true. And then you've got all these lies out here, and then we've got all these lies in here, too, right? Where we tell ourselves, you're a failure, you did it again. Oh, no, you can't pray because you just did X, Y, Z for the fifth time. We have the lies out here, and we have the lies in here. But we can confidently turn to the scriptures, the never-changing word written by the never-changing God, and we can delight that it is absolutely true. Secondly, God's word is valuable because it helps us to pray. For example, if if you are struggling with delighting, do you think the Lord isn't going to answer? You go to Psalm 19, Lord, help me to delight in your word because you say it will revive my soul. You say it will make me wise. You say it will rejoice my heart. Make me desire it more than gold, more than stuff. And last, God's word is valuable because it reminds us of who God is when we are struggling to remember. Um, Some of us recently went to hear Jackie Hill Perry speak, and she used this beautiful illustration of the Bible being um, 66 books of memories. And we recently, my mother-in-law, she is 91 and had COVID at Christmas, so none of us could be with her the week of Christmas. But thankfully, we had made her, I say we, but I really made it, we made a um, photo album for her that she could flip through and remember the things we had done in 22. And I thought, that is so true that the Bible is, it's like, think of it like a photo album, and we can go back and we can see what does God, who does he tell us he is. He tells us about his faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He reminds us of his goodness. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. We can look back and see he's patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. We can see that he's wise. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. We can look back and see that he's merciful. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we won't value it. We won't delight in it if we don't see its value. Secondly, we won't delight in it if we can't focus on it and we don't invest time in it. 
As I prayed for the Lord to help me to see why my delight was seriously lacking, um, I providentially started reading a book, and I have to confess, it was the third time. I'd listened to it twice, and I was like, I just need a physical copy. I've got to look at this. And um, it's about slowing down and this insane world where we feel constantly busy and out of control and overwhelmed. And in God's providence, he used this book to kind of diagnose some of my problem. This book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. We affectionately call it in the college and career group The Hurry Book because it's way too hard to say that a bunch of times. And it's by John Mark Comer, and he quotes someone at the beginning. He says, our hurried culture is like this. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And remember Tim Keller talking about meditating. He talks about skimming. Corey Tim Boom put it like this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And I would add distracted. How many times do you think on average a person touches their phone a day? So this is just touching it. It's over 2,600 times. According to a research, a research article in Time magazine, this was actually way back in 2015, so I don't know if it's worse or better, but before smartphones and the surge in digital access, the average attention span for a human was 12 seconds. What do you think it is now? It's eight. Comer points out that the average attention span of a goldfish is nine. <laughs> we have a problem. The poet Mary Oliver said, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Everything's instant. I can cook food instantly. I can order anything I want instantly. I can get news instantly. I can talk to someone on the phone on the other side of the world instantly. And because of this, we can also instantly walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of the sinners, sit in the seat of the scoffers. In our culture, we have so many technological advances that should be making life easier for us. We even have way better access to spiritual helps, but instead we're so busy and distracted. Comer says, if you're anything like me, when you get over busy, the things that are truly life-giving, like the abiding tree by the water, the things that are truly life-giving for your soul are the first to go rather than your first go-to. Our problem isn't ultimately a scheduling problem. We probably don't need to read a time on book management for this. We need the Lord to work in our hearts, to grow a delight for his word, to give us the grace to make it a priority so that we can come alive and we can flourish. Again, Comer says, we feel distant from God and end up living off someone else's spirituality via a podcast feed or a book or a one-page devotional we read before rushing out the door to work. Delighting takes time and focus. Remember verse 2, day and night. If I had scarfed down my peanut butter mousse in 10 seconds, would I have even tasted it or enjoyed it or delighted in it? If we're going to flourish, we're going to have to unplug our ears and our eyes from this life-taking world and abide by that life-giving stream. 
Is it wrong to delight in peanut butter mousse and children and our jobs? No, but if these gifts from God are distracting us from delighting in his word, we need to pray for grace to reorient, to regroup. Maybe you have been reading and it feels dull or difficult. Or maybe you haven't been reading for months, for weeks, for days, much less delighted in it. Here's the good news. Jesus delighted perfectly, and his perfect record is ours if we have repented and we're trusting in him. If we're trusting in him, his record is our record. For he made him who knew no sin, he delighted perfectly in the word, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As a church, sometime in the past, during COVID, pre-COVID, we read Gentle and Lowly, and my favorite chapter was chapter 21. So Dane Ortland he quotes John Flavel, as God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. He goes on to say, how easily we who have been united to Christ, we wonder what God thinks of us and our failures now. The logic of Romans 5 is through his son, he drew near when we hated him. Will he remain distant now that we hope we can please him? He eagerly suffered for us when we were failing as orphans. Will he cross his arms over us now, over our failures as adopted children? His heart is gentle and lowly toward us when we were lost. Will his heart be anything different toward us now that we're found? And my favorite part while we were still sinners, he loved us in our mess then. He'll love us in our mess now. And he goes on to say the very fact that we might be feeling guilt over this is fruit. What do we do with that guilt, that failure to delight? Do we think he's not going to answer our prayers for help? Even David had to pray, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. May the Lord give us hearts that delight in this priceless gift that he has given to us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can come to you with our failures, our distractions, the things that interfere with us valuing what is most valuable. And we pray that you would give us that grace. The grace that we started with continues, and we ask for it to delight in your word, to make time for your word. We pray that you would help us to Put these important things first in our lives. Give us wisdom to know how to organize our time so that we can prioritize. We thank you for Jesus who delighted perfectly. We thank you that if we are trusting in him, he has obeyed perfectly for us. And Father, we pray that you'd bless the rest of our weekend together, that our hearts would be encouraged, and that we would love you more and be more like you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.